welcome to the Sports Show podcast, your bite-sized guide to enter the sports industry. I'm joined, as always, by the Lycra King, Ruben Williams. How are you, mate? G'day, Ryan. I'm fantastic. Thank you. I'm very excited for this episode. We've hinted a lot at uh, our cycling behavior over the last 160-odd <laughs> episodes, and today we actually get to chat with someone inside Oz Cycling. I'm stoked for this one. I'm missing my bike. I haven't been on the bike that regularly since I moved back to Melbourne. There's a few yeah. cars, there's a few trams around it's, uh, it's not quite the Great Ocean Road that I was used to in 2021, but no. uh, this episode just might inspire me to get back into it, I think. Yeah, I, I rode here this morning. It was quite nice. Mm. Pleasant. Well, Good that, weather. I've become a commuter as well, so yeah. cycling is now my commute. But, it's genuinely um, nice in the morning. Oh, it's beautiful. And especially because you know you're not going to ride 40 k's. Like, <laughs> my ride is six and a half. Like, that's <laughs> quite an easy ride. So Sometimes the 40 k's is, is what I look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and as the listeners will hear in this episode, we do mention our behaviours on the bike. So uh, <laughs> we'll get into it. And, we'll get into it. And that there's also hope for us when we get to 65 years old and want to head <laughs> yeah. off to the World Championships. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Well, we've, we've talked about sports grad cycling tours, so maybe this is the start. It'll happen. Anyway, we'll, we'll crack in. Uh, if you want to learn more about who we are, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn or if you want to ask us any questions, jump into our community. Absolutely thriving. Got some big events this week, next week, every week. It's all happening. You can meet anybody you like in the community in there. So jump in whenever you can. Mm, absolutely. And a quick shout out to our friends at Netball Australia who are just taking over mm. the community. They've already hired four full-time roles. They've got another two interviewing this week. Hamish Bigwood is one of our great friends over in Adelaide who's making the jump over to Melbourne soon to join Netball yep. Australia, uh, and we are stoked for him. He's been a member since uh, probably the middle of last year, yeah. and now he's got a terrific opportunity with an amazing organisation. So thank you to Netball for providing yeah. those sort of things for people like Hamish. Also awesome to see we had Ironman Group join this week, which yep. is huge, You know, provides so many opportunities for people wanting to get into the sports and events. Uh, industry, but also TLA Worldwide. Mm. And if you don't know who TLA Worldwide are, look them up because they're probably the biggest sports and marketing agency in Australia, mm. to be honest. So we're excited. You can probably hear it in our voices. We're excited <laughs> because first of all, it's great to have those people in there, but the opportunities that are going to come from that yeah. are going to be huge. So we are pumped uh, for what's to come. Absolutely. So if you want to get your foot in the door of the sports industry or if you like Netball Australia and you just want to hire great people quickly and easily or if you like some of the young talent at Ironman Group and want to learn from the best in the world, there really is something for everyone inside the sports grad community. So get involved via the link in our show notes. Absolutely. Ruse will kick start the episode with a quick tip as we usually do. If you're currently studying or you've just finished studying, having a postgrad qualification in sports management on your resume can give you a huge leg up over other potential candidates applying for the same role. Exhibit A, Reuben Williams, absolute superstar from Deakin. He did the same, so follow his steps. <laughs> so if you want to pump up your resume and get specialised knowledge in pretty much all areas of sport, take a look at Deakin's postgrad qualifications. Their Master of Business in Sports Management is not one of, but the best one in Australia, ranked at number one. So add a postgrad to your resume. And that's our tip 
for the episode. And our guest today, Kip Kaufman, he actually went through that exact program to get where he is today. Oh, there you go. Exhibit A and Exhibit B. Here we go. <laughs> You'll hear him talk about like he started in a sports science background back in Canada, but then he decided he needed that business side to his skill set. So he went to Deakin University, jumped into their MBA degree, and now sits as a general manager of sport at Oz Cycling, having been through Cycling Victoria and uh, Cycling Australia. Uh, but the reason we got Kip on is because Cycling Australia has merged with 17 other organisations around the country to become Oz Cycling. And so if you weren't aware of this, this is one of the more fascinating transformations that's ever happened to an NSO in Australian sporting history. And Kip, being the general manager and being part of the transition, gave us the full rundown on exactly what transpired and how it came to life. Mm. Yeah, I love how he also, you know, he shared how he brings people on the, or brought people on the journey um, and bring, you know, the visions of what was it, cycling Oz at the time, to life, to, to bring everyone together and just how he did that. And, you know, it's so cool trying to, you know, think about what he mentioned, about what they did and applying it to our experiences as well. You know, we talk about grassroots clubs and things like that. It's literally the same principles. So mm. that was great just hearing how they did that. Yeah, if you want some uh, advice on communication and getting ideas across, you don't have to be an executive at an NSO. You can just be trying to get a holiday in your work to... um. Mm. use the same things that Kip applies. But finally, uh, he had some really great uh, pieces of advice and methods to dealing with conflicts. When the stakes are high and the passion is higher, uh, sport is extremely passionate place to be. Everyone loves what's happening. People don't change too easily. So naturally there's going to be conflict, well-intended mm. conflict, but conflict nonetheless. So Kip has seen his fair share through this merger and explained some of the methods to, to dealing with it constructively. Fantastic. Well, let's jump into it. Enjoy this chat with Kip Kaufman. Kip, welcome to the Sportscrape podcast. Thanks for having me. Kip, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Ryan and I are massive cycling fans and casual cyclists ourselves so to be able to talk to you today is is terrific we're going to get into the uh we'll call it the mega merger of what 18 could have been 19 organizations into one but first tell us a bit about your role as egm of sport that sounds a bit broad what, what does that actually involve it does sound broad. Isn't it lovely? You can just say everything and nothing all at one time. Um, <laughs> I, I like to think of it as almost anyone who, who's, who's around the bike and, and how do we support them. But in, in probably more pragmatic terms, it's, um, it's events. Um, and that, that goes from all the way from events that we bid for, host, run, um, contract out. So those can be major international events like World Championships or World Cups, down to supporting the at the club level, setting around regulations, um, uh, how how they run, um, things like that. So standards around that. So there's a quite a quite a variety of what the team looks after. Um, also uh, education. So any of the education programs in cycling, that's a bit wider than your traditional official and coach, but, um, but that probably summarizes it really quickly. And then um, pathways. So pathways, again, in cycling, a little bit different where there's the pre-performance, just like um, all sports, you have that pre-performance level uh, and until you might be categorized or move into a 
to an institute or the Australian cycling team. But uh, probably the key difference that, that we think there is is there's that lifetime of, um, of uh, performance that you might have or, or be within the pathway. So a, a 35-year-old can be a world champion, an 80-year-old can be a world champion, or can just be back at their club. And so we, we our team also looks at that. And that's probably been one of the more recent uh, uh, type of thinking is what's a lifelong pathway, um, which is a, which is quite a quite a different set mm. of thinking and also a different set of thinking when you consider it across many do- disciplines. Kip, so I'm a, how would you describe me in a cycling sense, Rubes? I'm a casual, casual, fair weather, uh, can't be too windy, can't be raining, <laughs> got to be sunny. Uh, so let's say, you know, I'll ride, to, I'll ride to work occasionally, but then maybe do the old ride on the weekend. What bucket do uh, do I sit in in that in, that, in those categories? <laughs> Um, well, I think you're like a lot of people, right? We have a we have a million people who ride their bike each each week uh, in different ways, um, and that's the beauty of it, right? There's the people who are motoring down the road in their light yeah. run; they love that. There's people who go to the pump track, and they mm. love that. There's people who um, who just ride around their block, and they love that. And that's the beauty of it. Uh, my view is you're just part of the riding community. Yeah, I, I don't know. Mm. I, I think putting labels on all of it is is hard. A lot of people wouldn't call themselves a cyclist. They might call themselves a bike rider. They might call themselves a cyclist. To me, it doesn't really matter. You just like to get onto your bike, however you like it, and that, and that's what's fantastic about it. So I don't know. I I don't love bucketing it, but uh, the the most important is that you like getting on when you like getting on. And the last few weeks have been fantastic for doing that. Mm. I like what you said about the lifetime pathways as well. I thought that was really interesting because there's a bloke at my cricket club called Darcy and he keeps telling me about his dad who's probably 65-ish who has gone off to like the, I don't know what he called, the overage world championships all around the world. And he's just, from what I understand, his dad wasn't someone who was particularly professional in his younger years, but he's just kept it up and kept it up and now he's found opportunities to race um, against the best in the world at his age category, which I think is awesome that the sport provides for those people. Isn't it great? This year we um, introduced for the first time in BMX uh, 55 and 60 plus. So interestingly, maybe because right. internationally it only went up to 50 years old, all the other disciplines go to 80 years old. Wow. We wow. introduced those for the for the first time this year. And I couldn't tell you the happiness on these men and women's face of becoming a national champion at 55 years old or 60 years old and just the great how grateful they were for it we didn't yeah. really do anything like just <laughs> category. but how happy they are and how much they're into the sport and they'll invest in it and they'll spend their time and they'll help kids and they'll do all those things just that little thing um it, it you know when you reflect on it you think why didn't we do that so many years ago mm. um and only that only came probably from us thinking of how do we treat everyone equally across all disciplines like, why can someone do it on the road to 80 years old but not BMX? That yeah. didn't, didn't make much um, sense. We were mostly going by what it was happening internationally. So those are the kind of um, interesting ways we can work when you kind of expand your mind out to different thinking. Mm. What, why is it, do you think, that, you know, cycling has such a long longevity? You know, you, you can do it till the day you die, really, which, which is amazing. You, you don't see that in many sports out there where people you know basically participate until they're done you know is it because yeah. it is quite physical you know like when i get off the bike i'm cooked um 
but you know you can see an 80 year old go and do it no problem and they can do that you know for as long as they live I'd love to give you the technical answer, which would be someone would say it's no, it's low impact, right? And that's often what happens. Mm-hmm. Someone's someone's done running or something else, and they and they come in because they need a lower impact um, sport. Yeah. I actually think there's other things to it. It's the um, it's the uh, friendships you can have with it. It's social. It's a lot more social. You have a coffee at the start, or you have it at the end, or you um, you're rocking or in the middle. Or, or you talk about what you did, right? You go away, you go away and you, you, you go on a cycling holiday. Like all these things are, cycle tourism is huge. You see mm. governments investing in it. Um, so I think there's that part to it, that there's this lifestyle uh, about it. And I think that's what, what uh, attracts a lot of people to it. There's an industry around it. So it's really cool. You can get the new, newest kit. You can get some, yeah. but probably most importantly to all those is, it actually isn't well. Well, many people see the growth as um, road ma- mammals on the road. You know, that's what people see. That's not necessarily it. And a lot of the growth is around you choosing what you want to do. So, mountain bike, bigger and bigger, especially from that um, that lifestyle uh, standpoint. Um, so, so there's this. Um, choice of this is what I really like. I want, I want to be in a safe environment and I want to be off road and I want to challenge my skills and I want to be on a new bike. I don't want my heart rate to go through the roof. You can choose that. I, I want to go in and um, ride the same routes that the pros do. You can go and do that. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's open yeah. to you to choose your own adventure. It's kind of like a game, choose your own adventure and it kind of can suit every single person. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Like you, a person jumping on the bike for the first time can go and ride along the same roads in Barwon Heads that have got Cadell Evans painted on the tracks mm. that uh, Cadell is training on in the lead up to the Tour de France. So it's a great sort of, I don't know if it's an equaliser, but everyone's on the same tracks as you say. So it's quite, quite cool. And um, you're right. Like I've, I've noticed my, my dad's uh, cycling habits kind of change over the years. I remember when he first took up cycling around the age of 50, him and his mates would go out and they'd try and do a big ride out to King Lake and back about 100Ks and they'd try and ride as fast as they can. These days they'll do like a cruisy 40-kilometre loop around Kew Boulevard, stop for a coffee um, in Abbotsford, stop for another one in Richmond and cruise at about 20 kilometres and just chat about how their week was the entire time. But they're out there and they love it, which is important. Yeah. It is, and, and I guess that's exactly what it is. You can kind of dial it to however you want to um, enjoy it, and that's that's a perfect example of someone being able to um, to keep doing it uh, in in the way they want to do it. And uh, yeah, that, I think I think that that's a perfect example. Love it for for the listeners out there. My, my route is uh, what do I do? I go Albert Park to Black Rock, mm. uh, coffee at Black Rock. Yep, it's about twenty k's, and then uh, then back again. So, I'll see you out there on the road when it's uh, no wind and sunny. But uh, only if it's twenty degrees or more. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Kip. Um, when we spoke earlier, you mentioned you, you wanted to be, always wanted to be a swimmer, uh, which is which is awesome. And did you always fancy the sports science, you know, way of sport, or how did that play out for you? For you? Yeah, uh, well, I think um, probably like a lot of people uh, or a lot of people in our network, sport was always a part of my life. So I grew up in a town of 6,000 people. Genuinely, my dad knew everybody's name. Uh, That sounds like hyperbole. It's not hyperbole because he was the postie. So he posted it. So he actually knew everybody's name. And um, and so uh, that's why it was like I was swimming, soccer, everything. It was all part of uh, uh, 
each each part of my day and uh and so it just it kind of ramped up ramped up ramped up in my life so that's probably all i could see as part of my life um obviously started studying in the field and uh and probably only saw science for a while as the as the um pathway if you will maybe that's all that, that i was um surrounded with maybe that's all um i was pushed towards but certainly until university there's was, there wasn't these other fields that you saw that were or at least it, they weren't in front of me that that could be part of sport um and uh and so th- that that's why this seems pretty reasonable this seems the best way to get involved with it and uh, and probably that's initially the my the pursuit that i made with it fantastic and tell us a bit more about your uni days. What did you do to gain experience back then? Yeah, so I went to um, uh, McMaster University in Canada um, uh, and did a did a bachelor's degree in kinesiology, which is um, slightly different than it than it sounds in many ways. So there's lots of people going in different directions, whether that be uh, so almost everyone was doing um, some kind of postgraduate, whether that be a teacher, a chiropractor, a physiologist, a um, uh, physiotherapist, and, and then a, a small cohort going towards um, going towards um, sport sport business, if you will. Um, so, so probably the first couple of years, I was, I was convinced that I would be um, some kind of coach or some kind of scientist or some something like that. That was that was without a doubt that certain of that. And while that was uh, fine, I think where I where I really started turning the corner was when I started joining um, stuff at the university. So working with the um, athletics department, as they call it there, working um, uh, leading the uh, the. Uh, um, student student uh, athletic council there and starting to run more things working in national championships working with teams working with the administration um, and then started to go maybe I should try some of these business courses or something like that and started to do relatively well and they all seemed to uh, click if you will quite quickly and it seemed a little bit more enjoyable than what I was doing before so um, so that that kind of started to spurn my direction quite quickly in another way um, in those last couple of years. Love it. it. Sounds like you you know you just gave everything a crack, which is which is awesome. You know, just made sure that you know while you're at uni, try and get as much experience as you can because that is really a rehearsal for the outside world and something we always mention. You know, to to students that we speak to is just to get stuck into it because it's a perfect opportunity. I, I think you're right. I think early on, I didn't realize that. Genuinely, yeah. <laughs> like I, I, I genuinely thought, yeah, I could just cru- cruise through this, um, do some courses, do well enough. I'm sure it'll all work out. Mm. I'm sure yeah. it'll all work out. Um, just to do my own training. That's enough. I'm sure someone will, I'm a pretty good person. Someone will pick me up. It's okay. <laughs> I, I don't really need to worry about my career. Um, but certainly, from then and since then, all of those opportunities have actually, um, I've been able to lean on and learn more and more because of that and appreciate even those students who are able to come in and throw their hand up um, and get that experience because you can really do a wide variety of things. Mm. Um, And certainly, well, I I still believe that the work I was able to do there and even as I moved to Australia and just threw my hand up for things is uh, gave me the footing, gave me years ahead of experience as a result. Yeah, nice. And you just mentioned the move to Australia. That probably is a good segue into how you got into cycling. Can you can you tell us how, how that all transpired? Uh, yeah, yeah. 
Well, it, it, I have to say it was post. I always, I always rode. So I, I moved. I went to Deakin University. Uh, part of that was was right back into that McMaster story, which was um, I was. I was continuing to work at the university post graduation, and there were some some great things happening there. It's a pretty world class uh, place, and the and it's certainly a world class um, athletics department there. And, and it was really interesting. But what I was finding was um, I really needed a business background. Like we're it's a, often a services business, um, and I, I clearly didn't have that. Clearly didn't have some of the knowledge. Um, areas to to really grow and so move move thought I need, I need to do something great and there's all of these opportunities almost like you you suggest there's all these things happening in melbourne imagine i can go there get a master's degree and jump into these things even if i don't get a job i'll just put my hand up mm-hmm. start volunteer which i did start volunteering for every possible um thing that i could do all it probably helped that i was an international student so it could only work so much so volunteering <laughs> was one of the ways and just was like almost the full-time volunteer if you will um and we, and that just started revving itself up pretty quickly um uh with, with all of those opportunities that were so that it was get these world-class opportunities that i couldn't get um where i was get this great education particularly in business um and put those all together. So if, and when I went back, I'd, um, uh, well, it was when I went back at that time, uh, th- that was the thinking that I'd be, I'd just have accelerated well past anyone else. Yeah. Um, so may- maybe my competitive side coming out there that I, you know, I'm trying to get past everyone. So I'd always rode, but that was part of moving to a new country. I'm, I don't know how to drive on the other side of the, the, uh, road. <laughs> <laughs> I better start riding everywhere. <laughs> that was probably safer. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I thought, no, that's that's just in the too hard bucket. I'll just start riding everywhere, <laughs> and uh, and that that's genuinely how the riding, um, my riding journey journey started. It's 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 evolved quite a bit since that time, but that is how I got into riding regularly. Fantastic. Well. We, uh, if if you forget which side to ride, which side to ride on, the Great Ocean Road points it out very clearly for you for all the <laughs> tourists that, that make it down there. Um, let, let's get into the uh, the unification of Australian cycling now. So this is like three streams of cycling merging into one. All the state bodies, all the national bodies, and probably the biggest merger of sporting organisations in Australian history, which was what three years in the making. You're talking about. 18 different boards with 130 directors and 11 different CEOs all involved in this kind of dramatic overhaul of structure and strategy and, and governance. Can you tell us a bit about, about the mega merger and what was your involvement in uh, how it played out? Yeah, I, um, I, I love to call it uh, uh, the phoenixing. Um, and, the, and the reason I like to call it the Phoenix scene is because it kind of, and maybe this is just from my own view, it, it allows some of the, um, the legacy to go away. Um, that there's some great things from legacy. Um, and, and there's some rich and, and incredible history in Australian cycling, all parts of it. Um, and we should acknowledge that, but I actually think where we were, wasn't, wasn't the best wasn't the best we could be, wasn't the best vision of what Australian cycling could be. And, um, and you kind of have to burn things to the ground to create better things. Um, so, uh, I, I, um, so I don't, I don't, well, I, I myself was a employee previously of cycling Victoria and then moved to cycling Australia cause I thought I could make things better 
And it's really easy for, for those, I think, in a state, and, and many might have this view of the, you know, the mean national body. They're terrible. They know nothing what they're doing. That's probably fair sometimes. Um, that I, I, I could be the, I could continue to be the, um, the uh, angry person sitting, you know, the guy yelling at the, the, the sky, or I can make a, make a big difference. And so that, that was the, the jump to, um, from Cycling Victoria to Cycling Australia. And then obviously uh, moving into um, as part of the executive at um, at uh, Oz Cycling. So I guess I guess my my role has been uh, mostly to to it was really led by the the CEOs of the the organizations who put themselves on, and the chairs who put themselves on the line to um, to say this is what we're going to do and then we're going to leave and they did that. You know, it's quite selfless for many of them. They knew um, that coming in, that's what they do, particularly uh, Steve, who is leading up Cycling Australia. He really came in just to do that. And so for, for many of them, it was, this is going to be my legacy to create something greater in the in the future. Um, from, I guess from my, my view, what I, I tried to do is help um, – lead cycling Australia into the best possible place it could be for the areas I was looking at to, to enable a smooth transition. Um, but none of these things can happen smooth. There was, I'm sure through some of your research, you saw there was multiple votes and there was multiple changes in it. And well, it, well, it, I actually think it went longer than three years because lots of people have talked about how silly having 18 organizations were. It's at least been talked about muted for at least 10 years and um, and then probably strong conversations happened over those three years. But, you know, the, the final vote only happened four weeks before the actual new organization created itself. So it was kind of like uh, we need to crash. And you can talk about things forever, but sometimes you just need to make things happen, even if it's not perfect. And it was um, uh, what I say to everyone is I learn something every day. There's so much I don't know. So I've been around cycling for a while now and in many organizations and there, I can't tell you that I know 10% of things that I should know. Um, but that's the beauty of what we're doing. We're actually being able to go back and do better than ever before. Like, um, and, and I think that's a lot of um, the change that's happened. We, we changed from those 18 boards where a CEO or one of the staff or someone, someone else would have responsibility. And this has really created more accountability in my view. Um, you, you, you change, you change to a really professional organization. So an, an individual used to maybe administrate and they're fantastic. And they went to the board and sought an answer and they would sign that off and, and it would go on and there'd be all these conversations. Now we'd have a meeting like this and we have to, you have to come prepared and you have to, um, you have to, put yourself on the line. You're accountable. Uh, often I say we're accountable for this decision. There's no one else that's going to. We are accountable and we need to be able to stand up to it and hand on heart, know that we've done the best possible job and, and also know our stakeholders well. So again, before it might've been off, oh, we're in trouble. Let, let call, call the president, call the secretary, whatever. <laughs> uh, um, but it's now, we need to maintain those relationships, communicate really clearly why we've done that. And, and it's, it's a real um, change mechanism. Certainly, like I said, I learn every day about it. Um, but I think long-term what it creates is this real strong strength within the organization and, and no divisions. Um, a, a, lot, a lot of what we, we now have is um, we're, we're in trouble this weekend in New South Wales. We're not, but let's just make that up. We can pull some resources from Victoria and work on that because it's for the greater good or um, someone we, we, we can hire people from wherever 
So if you're the best possible person, uh, it doesn't matter that you're not in Melbourne. You could be in, um, we have people in regional Victoria, regional New South Wales. Um, the, the, so some people can be from anywhere as long as, and we are starting to get the best possible people. So that's probably a long answer to a very short question. <laughs> I might not have answered it, but. Uh, no, I reckon, yeah, it, it, I reckon there's a lot we could dive into on this topic. Just yeah. quickly, what, what were the, the main streams of cycling that kind of came together? Yeah, there was, um, there was Cycling Australia which was largely uh, road, track, and paracycling. There was Mountain Bike Australia, which was mountain bike and cyclocross um, mostly. And then BMX Australia, which was BMX racing largely. Yeah. And, so they, and so they all had like their different state divisions. Yeah, mountain bike was, um, was a unitary model. So get, get this even more complex. So there were clubs had to vote on it. The uh, Cycling Australia was a federated model. So that was um, clubs voting for to the state to make the change, and then the states voting to Cycling Australia, and then um, and then uh, BMX Australia was the same uh, as Cycling Australia. Yeah. So, so to your point with your example, if BMX Queensland runs out of staff over the weekend up in Mount Isa or wherever they happen to be running a tournament, now with the new model you can fly someone in from anywhere over the country because you've got those relationships and it's all under the same organization as opposed to this small state body trying to, you know, call around for people. That's right. That's right. And, 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 you know, we're still, again, like I said, learning is the biggest word. Um, but, uh, you, you can bring people and you can develop in them in different ways. You can have people move across departments used to not, cause there used to be one person, maybe we're not the biggest now, but maybe there's four, and they can jump over to, to something else, try different things out. Um, but uh, and, and even through virtual work right now, it might not be that they need to show up in Mount Isa. But hey, could you could you send us up some of that that equipment you have? Or hey, could you um, could you administratively be at home and work on these things through the weekend? We had something the other week, and one of our staff had just um, recently had a had a child, so he couldn't make it. We changed in who could be there on site, but he was off site. And could do some of that work there. So it's just it's just that flexibility that it delivers, um, and hopefully keeps people around, um, and allows us to attract the best possible talent. Why do you think it took so long to make this change? It seems very logical from an outsider, um, mm. but obviously there's there's things inside that you know make that challenging. But yeah, why, why do you think it took so long to, to unify? And, and, and some of those organisations that we're talking about come together, they're 130, 140 years old as well. I, I think that alludes to it. It's history. It's bad yeah. blood that might have existed before. Certainly all of the organisations had um, history, positive and negative. Cycling Australia had some negative history, particularly with the, um, the issues that it had financially in the mid uh, around 2015, 2016 or so. Um, so history, I think, is a big one. Um, but uh, people like to be a big fish in a small pond. And they're afraid of the unknown. And there's so much unknown. And that it won't be perfect right away. And it won't. It isn't perfect right away. That's what they, they worry about. I also think people um, love their sport so much. They're so connected to it. And they're so worried about it changing. But, um, but I think what we're not playing is the five-minute game. We're playing the 50-year game. Uh, in the 50-year game, we could have kept plodding along, 
and plodding along and thinking about what could be instead of what is. So I, I just think people get, get afraid of what's the unknown. And this has been the great unknown. Every day there's the great unknown and every day there's mistakes. Um, but every day there's also a huge win um, and, uh, and greater than we could have ever imagined. Uh, so I think, I think it's, um, it's, it's that simple. I, I, I wish I could say there was some other great blocker, but uh, a lot of it sits in people's memories and, and, and they get afraid. And I understand why they would be. But in life, you have to kind of take those big jumps sometimes. I, I like what you said around how like when you know, people love the sport so much, it becomes very difficult to kind of make decisions and make changes. And in fact, Steve Drake, the, the Cycling Australia CEO, he even said at the time, you know, in the corporate world, you can make a hostile takeover bid, but you can't do that in the sporting world. You have to win hearts and minds and convince people about the benefits of the changes. And he also referred to the fact that the single biggest challenge was convincing those at a state level and at a local level uh, to be able to bring them on the journey. And this is kind of a, a term that you hear a lot, you know, you've got, to, you've got to bring someone on the journey to make a change. Mm. Um, so I was just wondering if we could dive into that for a sec for grads who are kind of new to the idea of bringing someone on the journey and, and stakeholder management in general and even change management in, in this example as well. Um, would you be able to talk to what this looks like in practice? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll start with a maybe my own uh, first learning, which I'll, I'll bring to, to Oz Cycling in a minute. But when I, um, when I first finished my master's degree, I worked for an organization called Blind Sports Australia. And in it, so uh, one, one man band thought I could change the world. Hopefully I, I can change the world, but um, <laughs> thought, thought I could in a day. Let's rip everything up. This is all, no, this is no good. We can make this so much better. Uh, and it just angered everyone. Lots of people could say, this is great. Look at how quickly we're moving. We've been asking for change for a long time. But uh, right away, I learned, wow, I've not brought anyone on this journey. I just said, this is good, and I'm the smartest person here. Um, and, and, and maybe that's overstating it. Maybe I didn't think I was the smartest person. But I certainly didn't understand uh, go, going slower about it to have the greater the, you know, the, the sum of the parts is much better than just this one person pulling things through. And, uh, and certainly that was a very early learning for me. It was, it was painful, very painful, but, um, but I've taken that throughout everything that I've done as a result. I, I couldn't have learned more at any time. Um, and certainly that's helped here, but, uh, uh, probably has extended it even further. And again, we've, we've learned, we've learned quite a bit through this time and, and COVID's actually made it quite interesting because you're not only changing your organization, you can't get face to face with people, which actually helps wins their, win their heart and minds. Uh, well, well, online is fantastic. It's still not the same. You can't be as mean to someone when you're looking them at, in the eye face to face. You can't, you can't convey the same uh, same message to them. And, and so we've had, we had to make a number of decisions in isolation of never meeting people. So thinking, oh, these, these new people um, have come in. In the past, what we, we also had was, I could call the president. I could call the CEO. I could, so because it might've been that one person organization. You could call them anytime, they'd get back to me. Now we have 150 staff, you, you, you know, you, you're retrying to find your place in the world. And those individuals who used to be the president used to have a, a big role. 
big operational role, in fact, and a big decision-making role, maybe all of the decision-making role in some instances. And, uh, and they'd gone to no decision-making role. And we didn't know them. Um, so that, that was, a, that was a, a really good learning opportunity for us. During this year, uh, a, a specific example, and maybe my own learning, was um, we, we, hosted, or we, we were supposed to host the BMX National Championships in, in Perth, bit hard to get to Perth this year, admittedly. Um, we hadn't hosted it in a couple of years, so that was even with BMX Australia previously. And we needed to make a, um, a decision on what to do. We want to try and get it in this year. How do we get it? We try, And we did thread the needle to put it on the week after the Queensland border opened. It's where the most riders in the country are. Put it in the Gold Coast, um, transferred some funding, it, uh, um, and and I had thought we'd consulted. So I talked to the board members, talked to key people, but thought I've got to put my neck on the line here. I've got to put my own neck on the line. It's not going to make everyone happy. We can't we can't ask everyone. We'd even talked about should we survey people? Should we do these things? I think I blew up the world that day. Um, <laughs> certainly that part of the world, um, and uh, and learned learned very quickly from that. You know what what are the right ways to uh, um, make sure on some of these that we consult who's right and wrong and I don't think there's a perfect answer for it but uh, certainly we're getting better and better at it uh, because it, it can certainly um, upset people and as we continue to change uh, you know what what people think believe their role is what do we even believe our role is and how we're best to interface with the community at large? Because the, the, the also great part of the organization is that more people can, um, you know, we're, we're actually, it may not seem like it at times because you're one organization, but you're actually more connected than we were. So as a national organization, uh, when I was at Cycling Australia, I probably only care about the national stuff unless it bubbled itself up. I don't have to care about everything. There, so it was kind of... Um, all care and no responsibility before. Yeah, if it, if it becomes my problem, it becomes my problem. Oh, no, it's a New South Wales problem. Now that's all of our problems. And mm-hmm. so I actually think we're much more connected to it, um, and that's making us need to be better at that consultation process. Nice. So I've, um, I've kind of had the same sort of hard learning at a, at a grassroots level, particularly in cricket clubs as well, where, you know, you, you kind of feel like you've got all the ideas and you just want to implement them straight away and without consulting anybody and they, they fall flat because you can't do anything by yourself. And just to add a bit of color to what you said, I, I kind of found some of the things that worked in later attempts to bring people on the journey and implement ideas and involve other people was just starting off with communicating what is the vision that you have for this idea and Mm. telling people that very early on and then from that point in time what i found was just keeping them updated just communicating what's going on what point in time so they don't feel like they're they're left out i kind of found that the reason why there would 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 be pushback or conjecture to any of the ideas was mainly just because they didn't feel a part of it (laughs) and so um for people listening who might be trying to do the same thing, I think from my experience, it's been a process of sharing the vision and then just updating them as it comes to life. Yeah, that's really, really insightful. I think um, 
I think that uh, you can certainly use that all the time. And, and part of our, our challenge has been, you know, uh, new organization, new CEO, new board, this Phoenix that I'm, I've called it. Um, and that, and we, we're still, we're still working on what our, what our strategy is and what our, our, our vision is. And I think that's getting closer and cleaner, but it's all those things happening at one time it is kind of this, we think we know what it is, but we're probably not quite landed on it. Um, but even at a simple level, the, your, your, um, your suggestion is spot on. Uh, and I think, um, again, uh, some of the development of the organization has been, well, we'll be more efficient. Don't have 18 organizations. We can be more <laughs> better at decision-making. And that's true. We, we often are. But at the same time, because of the change, we have to be slower to consult more. Mm. And so there's just those two paradoxical things. Sometimes you have to slow down to speed up, which I even find for myself is, is hard sometimes. And that's certainly been a, uh, a learning that, all right, everyone, we're going to slow down for two weeks, like two weeks, we've already, and we're going to do these five things and it'll make it much better. We won't be putting out um, bushfires for two more weeks and do nothing and have everyone angered. Uh, so let's actually slow that process down, clearly communicate, have a plan of what we're going to do, tell the people who are internal how we're going to consult on that plan, roll it out. If we have to update, we do, and then we and then we move on. And when then we're really, you know, to use the cycling term, we're in the big ring then. <laughs> in the top gear, I yeah. love that. But you're right though, like it, it's, it's so hard because people often neglect the importance of having everybody on board and just want to move forward with their ideas and then they mm. end up playing catch up. So um, you're right in that, you know, sometimes taking two weeks to make sure everyone's on the same level before going forward saves time down the track without having to have other conversations to catch people up. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, just, just one of those interesting things, especially as you come into maybe if you're graduating or, and, and you've, you know, been able to work on something, finish your assignments when you want, do things quite quickly. And then you go, Oh, we are going to wait a month to tell people we're doing this. So we're going <laughs> to yeah. ask people three or four times that we're doing this. Oh, well that, that, you know, uh, again, I've had that issue, but um, it, so I don't think it's uncommon to to a number of people to to try and work through how you can value add through that time. Mm. So it's not just waiting. It's not that you're actually just let's just wait or let's take our time. It's let's use that time to make sure that we can almost. It's like let's do the training for the next two weeks, and then we're ready to race. Mm. Yeah, and and for people who are looking for a different kind of application of bringing people on the journey. You can use this in very simple things. For example, when I first started at Cricket Australia, I knew six months after I started the job, I wanted to go to Europe and go to the 2018 FIFA World Cup in Russia. And I told my boss straight away, I said, (laughs) in six months' time, I'm out of here and I want to go experience the world and I want to go to the FIFA World Cup. And just kind of let him know, all right, I've I've got my ticket, so I've got my flight, we've booked accommodation in Kazan, all those sort of things rather than, you know, four weeks out from the tournament saying to him, oh, hey, I'm going to the FIFA World Cup in a couple of weeks' time. I hope that's okay because that, of course, wouldn't have flown at that point in time. So there are varying degrees. You don't just have to be a senior executive to kind of bring large organizations on the journey to put that into practice. Oh, it's a it's an awesome example that one. I, I can tell you if you would have told me four weeks before, I would have uh, I would have been unhappy with it. So. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and six months before, you kind of sit there and go, all right, 
I guess let's let's Sound, work it out. Well sounds fair. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm excited for you. And I probably would have got more and more excited to for you to go in <laughs> and have that experience. So yeah, I think that's perfectly done. Great. That's a great example. I remember that happened. <laughs> I was so jealous. I was like, oh, that's such a good idea. <laughs> um, Kit, one thing that we always speak about when we you know, discuss sort of volunteering in grassroots and, and things like that is how valuable it is because you can learn how to deal with conflict. Um, I'm sure you've probably dealt with a fair bit of conflict in the last few years given how this merger all played out. But can you share with us a little bit about how you deal with conflict as someone in a in a leadership position yeah certainly um i think conflict comes back to often the um two two key items one is communication which we've mentioned already and the other is passion people are just so passionate about it if we were talking about um which rake are you going to buy this week <laughs> probably it's a nor or what are you going to buy at Bunnings? People wouldn't get quite as passionate. Nah. But if if we're talking about who is selected to the under twelve team, like, there could be parents fighting over it. It's yeah. just it, yeah, and and it's not that it's more important. It's actually probably not important at all who's getting selected for the. But it is in that moment. It is in that moment, and that's how much people love sport in all all of its um, parts. So I think that's one acknowledging acknowledging what the um that that passion and knowing what that's about and knowing that people are um often just displaying that passion that doesn't mean they should act inappropriately in any way shape or form um so i think that's one the second so being logical and rational about it i think is the best the other comes back to that communication if you can get out and get communicating really early um then and be clear about it and know where the pinch points are going to be no, address them right away. Often they all go away. Or if it still comes up, uh, almost in my learning example, then starting to communicate it. Sometimes you won't agree on everything. It's okay to not agree. It's probably actually healthy to not agree. And then you actually get better through it. Um, but uh, conflict is, it is where I see where it escalates, not just a disagreement. A disagreement, I think, is actually really good and makes you reflect uh, upon doing doing better. But um but uh, I think it just comes back to the, that, that, that fundamental of communication, knowing when something will be, um, will, could bring up conflict um, and, and knowing how to communicate that appropriately and knowing who those key people are that you can actually, uh, that you should nip it at, the, at that level. So some people need different type of communication. Uh, it's not just, we're going to put all the FAQs on our website. That's fine for some people. That's fine for people who may just want to have uh, an arm's length view of it. For others, it's I need. I know those people are really impacted by this, um, and will want will bring something up. Let's call them all. Let's meet with them. Let's uh, let's talk through what those issues are. That might even make us change before um, before the conflict has happened. So uh, that comes a lot back into all those topics we've talked about. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a phrase called eat the frog, which basically refers to the fact that if you've got an idea or you know you should say something, then do it early. Like eat the frog early on. Otherwise, a frog's just going to linger in your throat. <laughs> I'm sure someone out there has um, knows more about this than I do. But um, 
uh, I think it plays a big part in in dealing with conflict because otherwise that that frog, so to speak, just gets bigger and bigger until eventually you can't swallow it. Yeah, it'll be too big. <laughs> yeah, uh, and again, I, I think um, I think there's been you know too many too many instances of of learning from that. Um, and and making that that swift decision into conflict, and sometimes that happens just in the heat of the moment as well. So we've all seen that in any any sport where an official makes a decision, um, and and they're a volunteer, and they're out on the field or on the court or whatever they might be. And in our case, they might be in the middle of nowhere, um, and there's a, a big piece of conflict that even gets escalated even more now because of social media and everyone having a camera, um, and so everyone has a view. A particular view on it, um, and wants to make a complaint about it, and, and so it can it can become very emotive very quickly and go on for a long time and take up a lot of resource, um, and so I think often where where um, we need to continue to work on is how do how do you how do you strengthen that at that local level where someone is under a lot of pressure and given a, quite a bit of responsibility. Um, and uh, and and so they they get into a heated moment. For us, it might be like two kids crashing together, and those two parents are angry, and an official tries to come in and makes a decision, and they don't like that decision, and um, and then that that starts to compound conflict throughout, and then then they're at the next event, and they're at the next club thing, and and it can it can keep escalating. Um, de-escalation of it as soon as possible, and just have, uh, supporting those people because then they leave. And then that creates a vacuum. You have a vacuum of someone who might be even more junior without that experience, and it is a vicious cycle. So um, that's certainly somewhere we'll we'll continue to work on and, and support, but um, has always been a challenge, I feel. Mm. I'm, I'm sure one area that would have caused a bit of conflict was this phoenixing, as you refer to, of the existing model to the brand new model that was designed to take cycling forward. I was wondering if you could um, describe some of the differences between the old model and the new model. And for for grads out there who might not be completely across what a model is, um, would be able to dive into some of the fundamentals of what is a model and how has it changed? Yeah, um, I'll hopefully answer you all right because I could probably go on about a lot of things here. But um, our so the the structure of the the organisation used to be um, uh, eighteen organisations with as big as 50 staff, I think was the largest, in a, in a federated model with a single CEO. Some had um, project staff, so an administrator and a board, many of those boards being operational in nature. So I think all in all, there's 150 or so people who had some, some, some board role, uh, often again, like I said, operational, depending on the discipline, um, and, all, and being, you know, working in my little, little square if you will. So the um, clubs would elect the, the state, repre- uh, state state boards. They would hire the staff or the, the CEO, if it was, and they'd hire the staff. The, um, the states would vote in the national board. Often you'd get people who'd been on a state board before, although that had started to dissipate a bit more through some of the good governance principles. And, um, and, uh, and then they would hire the CEO and they'd hire their staff accordingly. Then you'd have all those organizations funded by someone differently, state, state, um, or Sport Australia, or in the case of Cycling Australia, it was the only one who was um, the National Federation to the UCI. 
sort of make things really complex. I was the only one who could send national teams uh, to anyone. So while, uh, while mountain bike might have been doing all the work for mountain bike, the national team would be with Cycling Australia or would send the people to the Olympics. Um, so there was like this, this weird zigzag of things. Um, how, how, it's, how it's set up now is there is one board, there is, um, there is one CEO, and there is an executive team and then staff. Um, so think, think of it more as a big corporation, or maybe not a big corporation, but, a, but a, maybe in sport terms a little bit bigger, but um, a, a smaller, smaller business that we're in real business terms that we're running that has accountability to um, its clubs. So we have 500 clubs and, and they're the members now. They, they vote on anything from a governance perspective. So that's who chooses the board. Um, so, so that's that's the that's kind of the the first big change um, that I guess has has created what our what our structural model is. Um, and then I think the rest of it we're still while we continue to work through it we're starting to to get there. So each of the um, executive members has has a um, a portfolio whether that be in um, government and advocacy uh, commercial sport, participation, um, uh, performance, media, those types of areas, um, and, and really leads up and is accountable to the, to the CEO and the CEO to the board. So it's a, a really refined structure um, from what it was before. But certainly I think what we've learned a lot of is how do you, how do you know those people locally? Uh, some of that structure, which I think we're still working through, we have a, what we call state advisory committees, um, who who aren't like the boards used to be, but have a role in providing that on the ground feedback locally, where we're not able to maybe always do that. Well, it sounds like it's uh, been a long time in the making and been a lot of hard work to kind of pull all these different pieces together and really put this jigsaw puzzle together to um, make it a lot smoother and cleaner process for not only administrators to to carry out but for participants to be involved and elite athletes to um, um be involved in as well it looks like it's it's uh all heading in the right direction which is really great to see for australian cyclists yeah that's what we're hoping but again i think i think a lot of it's uh almost to that last question a lot of it's still what what do we find what can we make better how can we how can we you know really be world leading um and and some of that we we, we genuinely don't know some of it we've had to keep from, well, I, I keep using that phoenixing. There is that legacy that sits there. So how did we do this before? Do we keep doing it? How do you do it equally? So some sport, some of the disciplines or, or states used to invest heavily in certain areas. And um, how do you do that in an equal and equitable fashion? Because now everyone's accountable. You're doing that in New South Wales. Why aren't you doing that in Victoria? Mm. Why aren't you doing it in Queensland? And sometimes what's been really hard is we've had to stop things to restart them uh, because uh, so, all right, well they there used to be there's always been a BMX state team in in um, New South Wales, but there never has been in Tasmania. Is it okay that that's happening? Maybe, maybe not. My view is it's not okay, but um, so so now we have to take this longer view of how do we. How, what is the best for the sport? What is the best across the country? Which um, there can be there can be winners and losers out of that. Initial winners and losers. Um, so you might not that that BMX example again is that we have had to shut down the team to restart it so that we had a clear way of operating around the country. 
Otherwise, we would have almost been doing what we had done before, something different everywhere. And so there would have been that one local expert who knew how that was done. Mm. Um, So I think think those are some of the really key implementation challenges that we've had. And um, and, uh, I think it also creates the excitement into the future of what you could, if I'm from Tasmania, I actually have a chance now. Yeah. I have a way I can get into this. Um, and, and you know, maybe the exceptional talent had that before, but no one else had that before. R- Richie Port in particular, who is flying the flag for Tasmania. <laughs> Among many, uh, certainly, certainly on the road in the track. Um, Tasmania has, and, and even mountain bike, but um, particularly those two, Tasmania has not underperformed in the years. They, they, they provide some great um, athletes to, to cycling. Awesome. I feel like we could chat this all day, but we better wrap it up. But I think one last question for you, Kip, and that is what is one bit of advice that you would give your younger self wanting to get into the sports industry? Uh, I think uh, there's, a, there's a few, so I'm going to try and pick one. Like I'm really struggling here with the one, I'll be honest with you. I think it's um, a bit of have fun. Don't think you, you know, have fun and enjoy the journey of what you can do within it. It's a, it's a really, um, lucky place to be. You know, we're not, uh, we're not creating the, those rakes. Not that there's anything wrong with rakes, but we're, we're, we're <laughs> we love rakes. We love bikes. Yeah, we do. We do. But we're actually doing something really cool in the world. Like, Richie Port, you're right. I, I, Richie's a great guy. I, when in my life did I think, Oh yeah, I, I can I can have a chat with Richie Port and and uh, and some of these best athletes in the world. Did I ever think that 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 could happen? No, I probably didn't. Um, and probably took it like let's just keep pushing up the line as hard as you possibly can, and not enjoy all these moments that that are available to actually do something that's really really fun and enjoyable. Um, I, I think I think that's probably my my suggestion. Um, you want to, you want to do your best job, be professional, take every opportunity, all of those things, but you can actually have a really great time doing world-class things. Awesome. Some great advice. It's okay to build rakes. Oh, <laughs> if you want to get into rakes for it, it's totally fine. I didn't want to take it down. It just was uh, yeah. Yeah. in my head because I went past Bunnings today. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll hear from the rake industry during the week. Yeah, they'll be in touch. <laughs> and, and I do love them. I do have a few at home. <laughs> shout out to the rake industry and Bunnings as well. They'll all be listening. So good on them. But um, Kip, we better leave it there. But it has been unbelievable chatting to you just about your journey to start with and just seeing how many things you just dived into to, to get that early experience and then ultimately where you are today and sort of being involved in this huge merger, which is just, it's hard to comprehend getting 18 organisations into one. Um, so, yeah, credit, credit to yourself and, and the whole team for getting that done. But it's been great chatting to you and uh, good luck for whatever's next. Thanks so much for having me. Alrighty, Rubes. Well, there was so much to unpack <laughs> from that episode. Uh, wow, the detail of what actually happened in that merger mm. is just unbelievable. But yeah, just the story of where Kip came from to where he is now to how this merger's transpired and where they currently sit. It's a, it's a great story. So yeah, absolutely, and you know, pr- quite historic as well. Like these organisations have been around for a, 
over a hundred years mm. and now just recently have they come together to be one unified body to make it easier for people to participate and compete. Um, but that really got me kind of intrigued in how NSOs and other organisations are structured in terms of the way that their departments are set, the way that their reporting lines um, are directed and how that flows down into states and local clubs and organisations as well because mm. the way that it's structured and the way that you know information and people move between has an enormous effect on the operations and the success and the efficiency of what you're effectively trying to achieve. So I think if this has gauged your interest, go and have a look at you know how Cricket Australia is structured, how the AFL is structured and how it flows it down into AFL Victoria or AFL, mm. Vic- AFL Queensland. Uh, the NRL, you know, maybe look at overseas models as well because it's completely different when you get into like the yeah. NBA, NFL, or even English football as well. So um, if this has gauged your interest in terms of how organizations are structured and the strategy they implement and how they make money, then go forth, do your research because it's it's an interesting world out there, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I might add, like, it is actually really handy to know how NSOs are structured. Yeah. No matter where you are in the sports industry, whether you're in an NSO, it's great to know how it operates and how your organisation works. But if you're, you know, anywhere else, if you're in like an agency or whatever it might be, having an understanding about how the big NSOs work is mm. really crucial. So, you know, listen back to Kip and, and, and what he said and, you know, that kind of gives you an insight because it's it's relatively, um, you know, it's not the same across the board, but it, it all relates. It's all very similar in, in how it's structured with obviously a national body in all the states together. So it's great knowledge to get. Um, I loved as well how you spoke about just how to implement change Mm. on a huge scale like we've just heard, but also just a small scale. Mm. Um, The principles really are the same, but one one thing you really, what I loved about it was like communication was at the centre of it. Mm. Um, You know, and and all the things about explaining the benefits of it, you know, where are we going to be now to where we are in 12 months? Like this this is on the journey we're going on. Um, You know, it really is the same. So if you can nail that, whether you know you might be feeling that right now at your grassroots club, you're trying to implement something, which we've, we've both been in that position when we're trying to implement change, um, all the way up to when you get a job in sport and, and you want to do something in your department or your whole organisation. Uh, the principles really are the same, so it's, it was great to hear that. Mm, absolutely. Hopefully, you don't have to do anything like what the cycling australia ceo had no. to do and, and step in knowing he would have to fall on his sword <laughs> yeah. for the organization to go forward yeah. <laughs> you know what i loved as well the the term phoenixing yes yes i think that might be one we'll, we'll take going forward yeah what really. can we what can we phoenix next let's phoenix something <laughs> anyway <laughs> let's get uh anyway find us on linkedin plus be sure to jump into the sports grade community we'd love to chat you on there head to our website to join or head to our link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.